Good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day to you. And um, we have so many great dads in our church family. I'm often thinking to myself how, um, how fortunate we are. Good dads who may or may not have had very present and engaged fathers, but uh, we're grateful. We uh, believe that God has not only our father, but he has designed us to um, have fathers highly engaged and plugged into our lives. So we're grateful that we get to um, kind of highlight that together today. Um, I'm the kind of person who um, doesn't want to celebrate moms and fathers just because uh, the American uh, holidays tell us to. You know what I mean? So I'm kind of like the kind of person who reluctantly spends the day doing what the holiday calendar tells me I ought to be doing, right? Um, so, um, but we, uh, we do think it's a good opportunity to say, uh, to mention, highlight, and otherwise reinforce fatherhood. Um, Pastor Yon mentioned a podcast. Uh, our our um, Father's Day episode is out yesterday. If you are a podcast listener, uh, we invite you to give a listen to some of the ways in which we engage politics, pop culture, and our personal preferences uh, in kind of a long form instead of trying to jam it all in um, in between sermon points and so on here in just a short time on Sunday morning. So you could type into your favorite podcast application. You could type in Salted Podcast. And if you typed in Yon, J-O-N, and Dan, it'll probably uh, pop it up for you. And uh, we'd love to have you listen. It is um, our way of kind of talking through some of the major issues that are hitting our, us in our world and how we can see it the way God sees it and salt the earth, be a part of God's plan to salt the earth. So um, everybody doing good? You notice the sun's been out a little bit? I don't like to talk about the weather up here, but man, does it make a difference, right? So good. Um, we are today... Finishing up uh, last two Sundays on our message series in Romans, we're in chapter 5, and we are kind of working our way here at the first half, and then we'll, uh, we'll um, cover this today. Here's kind of the main idea, just to catch you up quick, a short little catch-up for you. Um, justification is primarily what we're attacking today because it's in verse 1 of chapter 5, and here's what it means. Justification by God makes a difference. I shouldn't say this is what it means. Here's what we're, uh, here's what we're saying. Justification by God makes a difference, not only to where we are heading in the future with God, but here and now uh, how we act and how we feel right now in the present. And that means both good times, good circumstances, where it's easy to be happy and joyful, and also in bad circumstances where it's not easy at all. So justification is something that God does for us by His grace through our faith where He brings inner peace. Well, what is that about? Really, it means inner peace where we can trust that by God's grace, He has made us right with God through our faith. And also, joy in our suffering. Not primarily joy for our suffering, but joy while we're in 
our suffering. And then today we'll talk about how justification that God provides to us, for us, by grace, through faith, also brings assurance, brings a level of certainty about specifically about God's love. And then next week we'll talk about joy in God, delighting in God, find, rejoicing in our new relationship with Him. So um, you may have come across this word that's kind of, I think, more prevalent and more, I think, um, more prominent now than it's been maybe in the past. And I also wonder if it's prominent because we're so well connected that we hear about it more. But some of you may be familiar with this, this, this word called deconstruction. Deconstruction. And it's a word that we're recently seeing in public and it is coming from pastors, church leaders, longtime prominent Christians, celebrities, um, well-known Christian personalities and musicians who are publicly describing why they no longer believe, right? So they're deconstructing their faith. I just want to make a side note that I've listened to a handful of them, and I noticed that all the ones I've listened to basically are describing how they have deconstructed themselves, their faith, and they no longer believe in the church culture in which they grew up in. But I haven't heard anyone yet describe why they no longer believe in the resurrection of Jesus and His death on the cross to rescue them from their sin. It might be out there. I haven't come across one yet, but it's just... I just wanted to, uh, one observation I've, I've known. But it makes me wonder how many of us should fear the possible day. Because I think this, when I hear a prominent pastor of a prominent church who's been an author, uh, published by well-known brands and, and publishers, and uh, prominent speaking in, in, in well-known um, famous platforms, and then eventually comes out with this long description of how he's deconstructing his faith. Um, it does take me back a bit. And I think to myself, how does that happen? Um, I know it can happen. How does that happen? And then sometimes I start thinking, did he ever th- listen to other people deconstructing their faith and say, wow, that's so sad and tragic, and how does that happen? And, and then am I the kind of person who is listening to someone saying, oh, that's so sad and that's tragic. How did that happen? And what's to come of me and my faith? And it makes me wonder, and I also start to think, if, if I can have that thought, how many of us should fear the possible day when we too come to realize, A, I no longer believe, or B, am I really saved by God from whatever I was saved from? Um, might I ever forfeit or lose my saving faith? I wonder how many of us have that thought. And um, there's this phrase uh, called losing my salvation or lost my salvation. And when I've heard people kind of talk about it who don't believe you can lose your salvation, they don't always frame it right. They basically frame it this way, that one day someone who, or one day someone who was saved the day before wakes up and it's like they've lost their keys. That's how they always frame it, I think. It's like, you know, I was saved yesterday, but why can't I find my salvation today? Where did it go? Um, I don't think that's a biblical description of, of what we're talking about. Um, really, I think more in terms of somebody who feels like they've lost their salvation because 
they have been behaving badly, selfishly, um, rebelliously, apathetically for so long, they feel like they've probably used to be saved, but they're no longer saved, having to do with their bad behaviors. Um, or maybe someone wakes up one day and they realize that they've been spiritually apathetic a long time and that that spiritual apathy must be because they at some point in the path of their life have lost their salvation and now they feel, well, that's what happens when you lose your salvation. You're spiritually apathetic. Um, and I'm sure troubled at the possibility that they're no longer saved. Or... Um, possibly it's my growing discomfort uh, or my growing doubts over time. I've, I, I've heard people tell the story of how they went away to uh, Christian liberal arts college and uh, got registered for a New Testament uh, introduction class, and the professor was so compelling that the New Testament couldn't be relied upon, wasn't dependable, wasn't trustworthy, that they, a, semester later, a semester later, they're like, I'm not sure I believe the Bible is authoritative and inerrant and trustworthy anymore. And it leaves someone with this level of doubt and disillusionment where they're wondering, um, you know, if I'm honest, you know, did I or should I or really with this kind of doubt, maybe I have forfeited my salvation. Um, so it makes me wonder, is that why, other than the occasional Sunday service, sometimes I'm not feeling it? You know what I mean? Um, sometimes you have this, maybe this day or this week or months where you, you, you kind of, you're doing the same things you've always done, but as a Christian, you're wondering why I'm not feeling it. I remember thinking this as a, as a teenager quite a bit all the people around me passionately going after God like their life depends on it. And I think to myself, in comparison, I don't think I'm feeling it like they're feeling it. And if I'm not feeling it like they're feeling it and they're fired up for God, what, is that, what am I fired up for? Other than God's football team, the Cowboys, or God's baseball team, the Yankees. What else am I fired up about? And I don't have that kind of that zeal that someone else has, and I start to wonder as a teenager, so does that mean nothing's really happening here? Did anything ever really happen? And occasionally, maybe on a Sunday morning, I hear my favorite song and I feel a little bit of the feels, but if I'm not, do I have to be doing something to feel saved? Should I be alarmed if there's long phases in my life where I'm really not feeling the feels? Um... So today, we're going to take a look at this main idea. The God who brought us into our new friendship with God will keep us going in our faith. And that same God will ensure that we arrive in heaven with Him. Um, there is, there's two ways of looking at our topic that we're going to talk about today. And the Bible addresses both angles one of them a little bit more deeply, and another one not quite as deep. But here's the idea the, the Bible talks about. Um, the, the, uh, today we're going to talk about in Romans chapter 5, we're going to look at how Paul describes assurance. 
And there's another way that if you, if, you hand, if you grab a handful of the Scriptures that are in, in the Bible, you can see how Paul, the apostle, was concerned that he continues to obey Jesus and continues to pursue God as a disciple of Jesus, lest he give up one day and be considered a castaway. And there's another passage of Scripture where the seed that is um, the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and his, and his power to save, is like seed that's going onto the soil of someone's heart, and at, and, and at first that seed takes root and that soil kind of uh, um, works with that seed and it, and it kind of like starts to bloom and then Jesus kind of gives all these ways in which that, that growth is kind of like crowded out and eventually it's, it dies off and, and what started as what seemed to be saving faith with fruitfulness, it's kind of like eventually thrown away and there's no life there. In other words, there's a handful of Scriptures that you could kind of read and if you read it a certain way, you, it looks like there are some people who are saved and then over time are, are, over time are no longer saved. Now, I am not here today to prove that that way of interpreting Scripture is wrong and another way is right. And I'll be honest with you, depending on how closely I look at one passage of Scripture, I'm like, yeah, that's possible. Then I look at another angle and I go, no, that's not possible. You ever feel like that? Sometimes you're like, oh, that's really compelling. Oh, that's really compelling. Um, So it seems like there are scenarios, there are cases in the New Testament where somehow somebody appeared to have saving faith and then for whatever reason became a castaway or kind of like are no longer following God. In fact, how many of you know somebody who at some point or other was alive and on fire at some stage in their faith and then today you're like, I'm not sure they're anywhere. Would you Raise your hand if you know someone who's... Or, or maybe you have, right? Maybe you have at some point. You're like, oh, maybe I was far from God and now I'm closer to Him and... So I'm not going to solve that today. Can the theologians do that? Do you mind if I let the scholars and the theologians solve all that? There is a passage of Scripture, though, that brings some assurance that Jesus is at work by His mighty power, helping us feel safe and secure inside His love in a way that doesn't depend on you having all the feels. Right? So we're going to tackle that today, and we're going to leave the controversy to the scholars and just know this. um, We don't have to be worried that one day you and I get up and we had our faith yesterday and then today we're like, wait a second, I'm not feeling it. And uh, maybe, it's, maybe, it's with my, maybe it's in the car my, with my wallet. You know what I'm saying? There, so there's some level of assurance, there's some level of certainty that the work of God has done in our heart that He did the work at the beginning and He continues to do the work until the end. Okay? All right. So if you're on the other side of this, let's talk it through because tomorrow I might be on the other side of this with you, all right? It's a, it's a, some would say, well, this is super essential. It's just a, it's a tough one. But I, um, so here's the main idea. Did we say this already? Yes, we did. Um, so I do have hope. I do have hope that I will experience, you know, as if you belong to Jesus, we do have hope that we will experience the full glory of Jesus in heaven one day. Right? We have hope that we're going to experience the full glory of Jesus in heaven. Maybe already we're experiencing some of the kingdom and God's glory, uh, but um, not yet in its fullness. So how can I be sure? How can I be certain? Um, how can I be sure? And 
I hope I won't be disappointed in myself, right? So here's what Paul says to the church at Rome. And this hope that you're going to be with Jesus one day in heaven, this hope will not lead to disappointment. So, in other words, I'm not going to hope for something that one day we get to at the end and it's like, oh, I'm not included or it never really happened or uh, it's not all that glorious, you know, kind of feel that... um, We'll skip that for now. For we know how dearly God loves us because He has given His Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. So, um, we know how dearly God loves us. So, I want you to see this. We're going to dwell on this real quick here. We can know God loves us. There is a scripture in Romans chapter 5 where Paul is describing to the church that we can know in our knower that God loves us. We have the power to know that it's true. We can believe it in, on an intellectual side. And Paul shows us as we see through the Bible that the Christian's grounds of assurance is twofold. It is internal and subjective, and it's also external and objective. Two different ways of knowing that God loves us and being sure that we belong to Him. And both of them are necessary, first, by our experience of His love. Now, this is a really interesting one. Because this is so subjective, remember I mentioned when I was young, just seeing people that were all fired up, zeal, fire, they're really going after it, lots of passion, and it seems like all the feels are there. Uh, Over the years, I've had conversations with different people who have not quite felt that zealous. Um, Maybe you remember, um, does anybody remember when you first came to Saving Faith and you thought it was going to feel just like the person that you were always watching who really loved Jesus, and you were like, I'm not sure I caught it. Whatever they had, I'm not sure I caught it. I'm not as... But how many of you definitely caught it? Raise your hand if you remember when you were first born again, you caught that zeal and you were fire. You felt it from your hair to your toenails. Anybody? A few of you. Okay. Now, any of you willing to tell me you didn't feel it? It wasn't all fire, right? So here's what Paul says. It is possible to experience His love. Since since God's love comes through the Holy Spirit, and we know that the Holy Spirit is indwelling all believers, there is a Holy Spirit love that's present in our hearts, and every Christian has some inner experience of God's love. For some people, it's a strong experience. Uh, For other people, it's mild It's gentle. I think this is probably more common. Um, You know, I think that you could probably relate to how it feels to 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 kind of have this salvation experience where it's mild and gentle. Um, I remember some overwhelming moments as I discovered the the thrill of fatherhood, right? And my and my infant children or my toddler children would do something, say something, and it would just like be such an emotional experience. Maybe some watery eyes over what they said and how they said it. And then there are large parts of time in between where it's not misty-eyed, watery eyes, 
heart-pounding affection. It's just a sense of confidence that I love my child. I don't feel the feels, but I love my child. I know I love my child. I'd do anything for my child. And I wonder if there's some, some ways there that, that mild and gentle experience of God's love is very similar. But the greater your inner experience of love, the greater your assurance, right? The more you have this inner experience of God's love, the more sure that you become. And generally, the people who have the most assurance are those who are very experienced and very disciplined in meeting with Jesus in, or meeting with God through Jesus in prayer, meditating on the, screw, the truth of the Scripture. Um, people who are very, very experienced at applying the, the, the life wisdom that comes from the Scriptures, following Jesus obeying Jesus. There's some growing sense of inner love in ex- by the experiences that come with being an experienced, obedient Christian who've experienced the love of Jesus very powerfully. Um, but then there are others who have a dramatic experience, and I don't think this is exactly uh, what people experience now, but some of you remember the series The Chosen. Uh, I almost lost my mind um, like my heart almost jumped out of my chest at the opening episode where Jesus saves Mary Magdalene. Do you remember that? Do you remember? In fact, um, she's learned this scripture passage her whole life, and all of a sudden Jesus knows her name out of the blue, and uh, he says something to the effect of, Fear not, for I have redeemed, redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And I was like, I don't know what it is about stuff like that, but I lost it. And can um, recognize that Mary, Lilith, had a profound personal experience with God by meeting Jesus. Now, the reason I say it's kind of hard to maybe connect with that was because um, most of us haven't had a personal, real, in-the-flesh encounter with Jesus. Some of you in here um, aren't old enough to have met him personally before he ascended. So we have to go by what we read and the witness of the Holy Spirit to say he's real, he's true, he is a, it's a historical fact. But this is an overwhelming experience and, and um, Lilith was broken, Lilith was desperate, and was helpless. And the religious power of Nicodemus was unable to save her. The religious power of a religious leader that came through the temple and rule following was, was unable. That power failed. It was the power of Jesus that brought her sense of belonging and love that came from a personal experience. Here's what Paul says about it. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and He died for us sinners. So it's a historical fact, right? Christ came. He is, uh, by the way, there aren't any historians, credible historians, that dispute that Jesus is a historical figure. Not disputed. Um, And in this case, we who were utterly helpless is us. We weren't even born yet when this was written. And Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. So God's promised king, imagine this, God's promised king, gave up everything, eventually leading to giving up his own life on behalf of people who had rejected him. 
on behalf of people who eventually crucify him, who eventually make him pay with, his, with the most excruciating execution ever. And Paul is making an argument here that we should all have clearly in our minds. Here's the argument he's making. Are you ready to follow the argument? Let's try that again. Are you ready to follow? The, follow the, you, can, you can also not tell me the truth. That's okay. I'll take that. You ready to follow the argument? Listen, listen to his argument here. Here's what he says. Now, he's talking about Christ who came and willingly died, right? Here's what he says. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, right? It would take an extremely loving person to die for someone else. Parent for child, right? Um, maybe sibling for sibling, but realistically, it's rare. Would you agree? It's extremely rare that anyone would be willing to die for someone else in their place, right? Um, even if the person is upright. Most people would not be willing to die for someone who is upright. Now, maybe if that person that they're dying for is exceptionally good, maybe if that person meant an exceptional amount to them, maybe if, like I said, maybe if they were uh, um, a, a child, an, ex- an exceptionally close child or sibling who's warm and kind and they're such a good person, then it might happen. It might happen. Someone might perhaps, I love that. Paul says, might perhaps, like really uncertain here, unlikely, be willing to die for a person who is especially good. You follow that? Most people won't die for anybody. There might be someone somewhere who would die for like a really, really good reason, good person, very connected. So, but of... uh, um, But would anybody die for an evil person? Would any one of us be willing to give our lives up for somebody who um, is wicked? Well, Paul says no. Paul says no. Um, But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still rebellious sinner. In other words, this is an extraordinary thing accomplished by an extraordinary son who is unique from any other savior, rescuer, religious leader, or teacher because he wasn't... And in fact, Jesus tells this story and he says, you know what? When you follow me, you, are, you love your enemies, You don't just love people who are good to you. He says even pagans are friendly to their friends. But when you're born again and you're following me and you've been regenerated, you have the love of the Father in Him, that means you have the capacity to love your enemies. Well, Jesus, I mean, what does that look like? It looks like this. Even while we were enemies of God, Jesus Himself has the power to transform our lives because we were so far from deserving it, but we were utterly helpless. And Jesus, with His extraordinary love. Now, this is something you know in your knower. This isn't something we always um, experience. But this is what it means. It means that we can know God loves us, not only by our experience of His love, we feel the feels, but also by the death of His Son. While we were sinners, we were part of the human race that was rebelling against Him. We were part of the human race that's resisting Him. Part of the human race that's kind of basing our entire 
justification before God by, um, by our own righteousness. And Jesus chose by the will of His Father to be obedient even all the way to death. So, therefore, Paul is saying you can know objectively, objectively, beyond all doubt that God loves you. And you can look at your feelings and you can preach the gospel to your feelings. When you are battling apathy, disconnect, disillusionment, doubt, when your circumstances in your life are um, hitting you with a straight jab, and just when you think, okay, that's all it was, jab, hook, jab, uppercut, just when you think, just when the circumstances of your life, the diagnosis, the unemployment, the, 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 the grief and the loss that you weren't expecting, all of the rebellion and maybe even the, the rejection that comes along with breakup in, in, in a relationship, when your circumstances say, I'm not quite sure God loves me, there's one simple way to test whether or not God, God loves me. And it's this. But while we were still sinners... While we were still sinners, God demonstrates His love for us. How does He demonstrate His love? Jesus died for you when you didn't deserve it. And then I, have, I get a chance to look at my feelings and say, you know, I have doubts about whether God loves me. Things are going so poorly. My circumstances are so bad. My life is so upside down. And you preach the gospel to your feelings. I've mentioned this before, but sometimes a lot, of our, a lot of us are getting in trouble in our life because we're listening to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves. You know what I'm saying? This happens every morning when you wake up and this, the alarm goes off. And if you listen to yourself, you, you say things like this, I, I, I can sleep longer because I can, I can probably cut down on how long my shower goes. And I probably don't have to sit down for breakfast. Maybe, maybe after a couple of snoozes, you're in, the, you're in the phase where you're giving yourself a quick little sniff saying, do I even need to shower today? I probably showered already this week. Right? You know what I'm talking about? You're listening to yourself. Or it gets even more profound when you get around people and you think maybe there's some beef or something went down or they're talking about you and then you start telling yourself, they don't want me here. They, they, there's really something going on. But you overcome that sometimes by doing what? You talk to yourself and you say things like, grow up, get out of bed, get the shower going. You're going to loathe how much crisis is in the schedule that started right here on the snooze button. Or you might start talking to yourself about how people feel about you by just saying the truth, which is, if there's a problem, maybe I should pursue it and ask about it. Or uh, I'm not going to be held prisoner by what I perceive. See what I'm saying? We talk to ourselves. And what I'm asking you to consider is this. Could we preach the gospel to our feelings on a regular basis and answer the question, am I really loved? Does God really love me? I'm not feeling it. I used to feel the feels during that song. Now I'm not. I know this never happens, but I used to feel the feels while Pastor Dan was preaching, but now I don't. <laughs> I used to read this text and it used to come alive in me, but now it doesn't. 
If God loved me, then I wouldn't have been rejected. I wouldn't have been abandoned. I wouldn't feel this lonely. I wouldn't be facing these bills that are happening in my life, this financial distress. I wouldn't be estranged from people I love. You know what I'm saying? And we look at our feelings and we pull up this truth and we say, God's already answered the question whether or not He loves me. And no one ever says, what, my life is going. I mean, I'm telling you, I am feeling on top of the world. But I do have one question about whether or not God loves me. That never happens. It only happens in the valley when it's dark. It only happens in the caves when it feels like we're alone. And church family, this is so important. We have to disconnect the love of God from what we perceive to be the happiness of our circumstances and preach the gospel to your feelings and to your heart. I know objectively, and I'm going to feel it subjectively, that God loves me. And my circumstances don't answer that question. In fact, this answers my question. Now, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 5 leave someone with the question. I know that I have peace. I know that I have friendship with God now. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to, have, I'm going to get to see and experience and the, the, the full glory of God that is in Jesus. But, here's my question. How do I know I'm going to make it till then? How do I know I'm going to make it to the end? How do I know I'll make it there when, when, when my tragedy hits, right? If you've ever experienced grief, one of the things that happens in grief is all of your ability to care about anything um, shuts down. Um, it's like a, a, a scorched earth and there's just no life, no feeling. Like, you know, I want to care. I, I, before this, I wanted to care, but now I don't even want to care. That happens. So how do I know that I'm going to endure that? How do I know I'm going to get through that? How do I know I'm going to, uh, in the meantime, when I, uh, that I'm not going to be just distracted building up my American dream kingdom? How do I know I'm not going to be distracting, helping my kids kind of keep their lives from coming apart or the wheels coming off the wagon? How do I know I'm going to make it to the end? This is so important. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. So, um, we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship and you can be sure that you and God are friends forever. Paul assures us that Jesus' work for our salvation not only gives us hope for our ultimate future, but also for our immediate future. We are assured that we will be preserved, that He will protect our saving faith throughout our life and through the, through the end to the, the days even of judgment. Now, Paul intertwines a couple of things here, and it's worth recognizing that if Jesus... Here's what he's saying. If Jesus stayed on the cross and died while we were enemies and He saw through our salvation that now that He is off the cross and He's alive, He is going to see through our faith 
by his life. If he didn't get down off the cross when we were enemies and say, this is too hard, this execution is more than my physical body could possibly endure, and he didn't do that while we were enemies, now, Paul says, while we were his friends, how would he ever abandon our faith, our saving faith? How much more will he protect us If he was able to save us when we were hostile to him, would he fail us now that we are friends? Paul says, if he didn't give up on you when you were at war with him, what could make him give up on you now that you are at peace with him? And he calls us his friend. If Jesus achieved our salvation when he was dead, he will certainly protect our salvation now that he's alive. He did the work to save us. He does the work to protect us is what Paul is saying in the book of Romans. Chapter 5. And it's inconceivable, he says, that Jesus would fail to save us to the end. Inconceivable. He did the work to save us. He does the work to protect us. And the God who brought us into faith will keep us going in our faith. The God who opened heaven to us will ensure that we arrive there. Um, do you remember? Do you remember this absolutely bonkers experience that Peter had after Jesus was crucified and it was kind of foretold that he was going to deny Jesus. Do you remember this? And then he gets confronted after Jesus has ascended. It's a, it, it, and it's kind of like this insignificant person confronts Peter and says, you were with him. And Peter's like, you kind of picture this mob scene and Jesus is like, no, I wasn't. No, 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 no. You were definitely following Jesus. And Peter's like, shut up. No, I wasn't. By the way, don't forget, this is Peter, what's his name mean? The Rock, who Jesus said, I'm going to, Peter, get this straight. I am going to give you this name to help you picture how significant you are. Peter, I'm going to build my church. This last stage is going to be built on you, Peter. Your name is now The Rock. And Peter is getting confronted by this insignificant little person. And he's like, stop saying that. No, I wasn't with Jesus. Yes, you were. I know it. And three times, three times, He doesn't just reject Jesus. He renounces that he knew him. Now, I've made some boneheaded decisions in my life. I've said things that I wish I didn't say. And I've got to tell you, it's not not, uh, um, really appropriate to do this, but if I make the moral equivalent comparison, Peter, I have not done anything close to that, I'm proud to tell you. Peter renounces Jesus, just as it was foretold. What does that mean for Peter? He's lost, right? He's he's now outside God's grace, right? He's now said, I had Jesus, but I don't want Jesus because I'm afraid of what people are going to think, so I renounce Jesus. And then, sure enough, Peter abandons following Jesus. Let me remind you that along with the disciples who were being called to follow Jesus, the Scriptures say they, let, they, they put down their nets. And Jesus says, come follow me. Put down your nets. Come follow me. Right now you're fishing for fish. And what does Jesus say to them? You're gonna be, I'm going to show you how to fish for men. I'm going to do kingdom work. And when Jesus returns after being crucified, before He ascends, when He returns to follow up with Peter... 
Keep in mind, Peter is now back to his old life fishing for fish. All the stink, all the smell. You can only imagine what fishing nets and... And he's back to doing that. And Jesus cooks up a little meal on some hot coals for him. I love that a lot of Jesus' work is done around something that he's cooked up for him. And Peter comes in and three times Peter denied him. Three times Jesus says a restorative question, Peter, do you love me? And he answers the question, of course I love you. And he says, then go get back on track and get back to feeding my sheep. Get back to fishing for men. And you see this restorative conversation where he lost his way But Jesus didn't see him as somebody who had lost his salvation. In other words, the Jesus who saved him is also the Jesus who restores him and protects him. Now, it's amazing to me that this story doesn't go like this. And I'm not sure exactly why, but it doesn't go like this. Peter's fishing and he's looking into the shore at the beach. And I'm not looking at you in the background. I'm over your head. Don't worry. He's looking and he's like, that looks like, actually, are you kidding me? That can't be Jesus. Jumps off the boat. Start swimming, right? In other words, we don't see a picture of Peter's heart leaping and pursuing Jesus. Jesus, who called him, who saved him, who sent him as a part of his mission to build the church, is the one who does the work to restore him. Because Jesus, by the work of the Spirit, is pursuing him. It wasn't his work to save himself, and it's not his work to keep himself saved. Jesus is always at work. The God who brought us into faith will keep us going in our faith. The God who opened heaven to us will ensure that we arrive there. And Peter was restored by Jesus because of the power that he has to protect him. So, what does this mean? Well, it means no more shaming yourself for not feeling the feels. If you're the kind of person who has always wondered if your saving faith is real because you don't feel the feels, you can objectively preach to your own heart now. And you know the answer to the question whether or not God loves you, whether or not you belong to Him. No more proving yourself to your heavenly Father. No more pretending that you're not failing so you don't risk upsetting your heavenly Father. No more fear that you failed so bad that you'll get kind of um, wedged out of Jesus' team or He'll turn His back on you and you're no longer a part of His family. And if you're a father here today with us or maybe you're watching in online, no matter how uncertain you've been of your earthly Father's love for you, You can literally hold on to this truth, this level of assurance and certainty that your heavenly Father loves you, maybe even in your dad's place. So you can be sure of your heavenly Father's love. And you can take courage every day, Dad. You can take courage every day knowing that you're not working for your your heavenly Father's love. You're working from your heavenly Father's love. You're not working for it. Take courage, you're working from it. You're not pretending that you're not failing and you're not 
um, at the same time, you're not trying to prove yourself to, to, to the, prove yourself to your heavenly Father that you're succeeding. You can rest today in the assurance that He loves you, and He's demonstrated His love for you. Would you pray with me, Father? Today, as we um, we just rest in Your assurance, Your love. And I'm assuming, God, that for some people this message is nice. Maybe they even think, well, this is true, but I already believe this. But for others, God, I just have to trust that for others, this message is a life changer. That they can today, with confidence, they can release, let go of, cut away all the doubts, all the questions. Where they ask, why is it that I have rested my trust, I have transferred the trust from myself and my work to the work of Jesus, but I don't feel the feels. God, it's my, I just trust and believe and hope that for that person, today, this would be transformational. Their heart would come alive with joy. And that for sure, um, they can rejoice in your love even if they didn't get the love from the people that they had counted on. We pray that our dads here would have a, a new courage to tackle all of the challenges of life and fatherhood with the new power of working from your love. We know you can do it. We're confident that you can do it. We trust you to do it, and we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.